Two weeks ago, uh, we were in Revelation chapter 13. And in that chapter, we were introduced to a dragon who is Satan. And what that dragon did was call a beast up out of the sea. And that beast came to carry out the dragon's will. The beast came to wage war on the world and on the saints. And in that message, I said that the beast is fallen, uh, false religion, or more specifically, any idea or philosophy or way of thinking that seeks to replace or opposes Christ. It is the spirit of Antichrist, anything that comes as an alternative Savior or counterfeit Lord. And as I was thinking about that sermon, I, I came to the conclusion, hopefully correctly, that if somebody had no prior opinions at all about the beast, then the message may have been compelling. But if somebody understood the beast differently, maybe as a, as a nation or as an empire or as an individual, it may have been more confusing than clarifying. And why is that? Well, it's clear in Revelation 13 that the beast is coming on behalf of and doing the work of the dragon, the devil. It's a, a personification of his work. And the beast clearly is imitating or aping Christ. That much is obvious. The beast comes uh, to do the will of the devil, is sent into the world in the same way that God sent Christ into the world to do his will. He receives a mortal wound and yet is healed. In the same way Christ was killed on the cross and resurrected. You see all of these Connections. Everything that Christ does, the beast imitates and counterfeits. There's even a, a false prophet, a second beast that appears and he does the work of the Holy Spirit mockingly, performing miracles and pointing people to the first beast and empowering people to better obey the beast and worship him. But is that any evidence that the beast is not an individual or a nation? I mean, couldn't an individual do this? How can I be so sure that it's not a nation like a revived Rome or an individual leader already past or yet to come. And it occurred to me that underlying this explanation of Revelation 13, things that didn't make it into the message, but there are numerous passages and verses and doctrines that describe and define the work of the evil one in the world. Right? How does Satan work? How does he deceive and kill? What does, what does the Bible, and very specifically the New Testament, what does it teach us about his method and his ways? And so I, don't, I don't mean the personal conflicts that one might have with temptation or accusation. Those come. But I mean in a, in a broad sense, in the broad scheme of things, in general, the big picture. How does the evil one make war on the saints? How does the evil one work in the world? And so this morning is uh, going to be a kind of appendix to Revelation 13. And you didn't have to be here to hear that sermon to understand this one because we're going to be surveying various scriptures and passages to see how exactly it is that the evil one deceives the nations and assaults the church so that, so that what is said in 2 Corinthians 2.11 will be true for us so that we will not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. If there was one verse that most succinctly summarizes those designs, it's John 8, 44. 
Jesus, speaking to the Jews who are opposing him, says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a murderer, was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, you have not left us alone or unprepared, but have sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us and teach us. You have given us apostles who gave us your word and prophets, Lord, faithful men throughout the ages who have preserved your word for us. And Lord, you have, you have not tickled our ears in it, but have told us everything we need to hear, things that convict and things that edify, things that guide and things that rebuke. Because, Lord, you train your people through your word and prepare them to face the trials that they'll face in this world. You prepare us to live godly lives. Lord, by your word, you prepare us to be good husbands and good fathers and good mothers and good wives, even good and godly children, Lord. In the Proverbs, you expound wisdom and teach us, Lord, how to be wise in the world. To be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I pray this morning you would do that work for your people, for us. Make us wise so that we will not be deceived or led astray by so many competing voices around us. Some obvious, some very crafty indeed. But Lord, you know. And you have armed your people to face these deceptions. And I pray, Lord, that in our lives truth would triumph and we would be a people guided by your word. Help us, Lord, to do what we are called to in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Not to be outwitted by Satan but to know and to be aware of His designs. Amen. Well, first, I, I guess the question would be, what is the work of the devil? What does he do? <clears throat> if, you were asked, uh, if you were to ask a Methodist, what is the main employment of the devil? What is he doing most of the time? Well, in my experience, he or she would probably answer, well, he is tempting the saints. That's what he does. That is his main occupation, to tempt believers to sin and cause them to fall away. And if you were to ask a Pentecostal the same question, what is the primary occupation of Satan? What, what is the kingdom of darkness all about? There is no doubt in my mind what he would tell you. Uh, well, it's all about possession. I mean, haven't you read the Gospels? Seems like there is a demon behind every bush. And that's what they would, would say that the evil one and his kingdom are employed in. He's, he's possessing everything. Backs to make them bad. Eyes to make their sight dim. I even heard of one group trying to exercise a demon of automotive failure when one of their members' cars wouldn't start. 
But that's what he is doing. He's possessing things. If you ask an evangelical Lutheran, the devil is always accusing. If you ask a, a fundamentalist, it's at least in certain branches, the main occupation of the devil is it's in the occult and fortune-telling and sorcery. And that's his primary domain. And if you ask someone in the reform camp, what is the primary work of the devil in his kingdom? Well, you would get an absolute assurance first of the reality of the devil and the reality of the work. Now, he exists. It's in the Bible. And you might even get, a, get an answer as to what he does. Maybe a categorical list. But yet, when it comes to the practical, everyday dealings of the demonic, we, probably above every other Christian denomination, are the most prone to live and act as though the devil really doesn't do anything at all. Now, of course, we readily affirm his existence. Right? We know what the Scripture says, and we know what it says he does. But when it comes to his actual activity in the world, we generally don't attribute much to him. I mean, there's always another explanation, isn't there? Well, they sinned because they're fallen, and no, it's not the devil tempting them. It's a sinful nature inclined towards sin, and that's true, but we do know that the devil is a tempter. Or, well, they're, they're, they're feeling accused, or uh, somebody is making very foolish decisions. Well, what do you expect? People apart from Christ are not wise. But there's always another explanation for the, the things that go on, and now, oh, maybe I was a bit unfair. It's not just us who are reformed who, who fall into this. But if, if you were to take the evangelicalism at large, Bible-believing Christians, there is a widespread denial of even the existence of the evil one. He's been reduced to a kind of fable or a, or a kind of superstition. And even though we might disagree? No, no, there's, there is an actual literal devil. The Bible says so. Well, yes, we can believe that, but in practice... What does he do? And the answer is, in most people's minds, almost nothing. In all practicality, we have banished him and done away with all of his works. Well, the answer why is simple. People find the idea of Satan, the idea of a, of a personal evil being, a devil at work in the world, is simply ridiculous. Even in all of this talk about him, it can be a little uncomfortable, can't it? Now, partly because of the emphasis on the demonic in certain branches of Christianity or in the charismatic movement. We distance ourselves from that. Partly because of the skepticism that's rampant in the age. And it makes us a little bit uneasy that maybe one of your friends might hear you listening to a sermon on, of all things, the work of the devil. It seems a little bit silly, even to Christians. You know, the Barnapoles tell us that among those who identify as Christians, roughly 78% say, 78% of those who identify as Christian, there is an all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. Makes you wonder about the other 22%. Uh, but the same number, of that same number, only 35% Less than half. 35% believe that Satan is an actual personal being and not merely a symbol of evil. 
Only 35% of self-identified Christians believe in a biblical definition of Satan. And, of course, we all know how statistics are and the difficulty of of self-identification. But if this survey does tell us anything, it tells us that people in general are far more likely to believe in God than the devil. Now, what should we make of this? What should we make of the apprehension that creeps up even in us when speaking about the demonic? What should we make of the, of the lunacy of the charismatic movement that makes belief in the devil all the more nonsensical? And in a secular world that, that while it denies all supernatural outright, it especially is opposed to the idea of a personal evil being. What we should make of all of this is this. It is nothing but a testimony to the devil's own success. It is demonstrable evidence of his cunning. For if he is in the business of lies and in the business of deception, well, the greatest way to deceive your enemies is by convincing them that you do not exist at all. And maybe you've seen in a movie or, or in, in a show, it's a, it's a common trope at this point. It comes up over and over again, but, but there's some threat Right? Maybe it's small, like a, like a gremlin or something. Maybe it's a, it's a massive cosmic threat. But it's about to fall on a nation or a village or, or whatever it may be. And, and everyone who is threatened by this, they think it's imaginary. It's not real. And the one person who is warning them, everybody thinks they've lost their mind. Have you ever seen something like that before? It happens all the time in film and in books. And then when the danger finally comes, when it's finally discovered, when the people learn that the warnings were actually true, great enemy is real, well, by that time it's too late. They were deceived. And because they were deceived, they were unprepared. And because they were unprepared, they were easy targets for their enemy. It is the best deceit. It's the most complete and perfect deception. When those you seek to lead astray, not only do they deny that you have any influence on them, but deny that you even exist. And that is what has happened to the devil. And it is by design. He is viewed as a kind of a boogeyman or a phantom or, or a monster among the, the pantheon of fictional villains. Let's put him up next to Dracula and the werewolf. And the fact that the world by and large denies the presence and person of the devil is a great triumph of his kingdom. But we, of all people, in the church, we must not be so easily deceived. Because we know that deception is his tool. And so the question I began with, if you want to know what is the primary work of the devil, what is, he at, what is his employment in the world... It is to destroy and it is to kill by deception. It is to oppose God and depose the truth and destroy people by deceiving them. And how pronounced, how widespread is this deception? It encompasses everybody. Everyone who has not come to a saving knowledge of Christ belongs to the evil one. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are from God. And listen to the last part of this verse. And 
the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A very clear line is drawn, isn't it? We know that we are from God, we belong to God and the whole world. Those who do not belong to God and are not from Him lies in the power of the evil one. Everyone who is not from God belongs to Him. And not only do they belong to Him, they are under His power. That's what this verse says, isn't it? If you were not in Christ, what power animates you? What power controls you? So what does this mean, to be in the power of the evil one? It means they're under his influence. They aren't merely captives as if they were locked up in a dungeon. Now they are in bondage, yes. But they cannot feel or perceive the weight of their chains. In fact, if the, scripture, uh, the testimony of Scripture is anything to go by, they rather quite like them. People prefer the chains of the devil to the service of the Lord. And besides that, they are blind to the truth anyway. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so not only are those in the world influenced by the devil and under his power, they're blind. They cannot see the truth. They cannot see the light of the gospel. They know only the kingdom of darkness. And, and one of the characteristics of darkness is the absence of light. It prevents sight. If you are in darkness, you cannot see. Not only do they know nothing else but the kingdom of darkness, they cannot even see anything because they are blind to it. Parade Christ before men. Parade salvation. Put the gospel before them. Take it all. Put it right before their eyes. And maybe you've experienced this. You who know the gospel and call upon the name of the Lord and know what it means to follow Jesus. You see somebody and you know they need to follow Him. And you, you wonder, why won't they do this? Why do they put it off? Why do they uh, stiff arm the Lord? Well... Because man in his natural condition is blind. And when you put the glories of God and His gospel in front of them, they all appear as foolishness at best and hateful at worst. They cannot see it, nor can they perceive it, nor do they want to. Romans chapter 1 tells us that because man refuses to worship God, then in judgment God hands them over to this blindness all the more. And this is, this is their condition in the kingdom of the evil one. Unless God is gracious and opens their eyes, they will never perceive the wonders of Christ and His gospel. And before you think or say to yourself, oh, that's not fair then. How can the Lord condemn people? Oh, it isn't right. If, if they're blind, it isn't right to punish them if they are ensnared by the evil one and held captive by him to do his will. If that's the case, why does God find men guilty? Consider Ephesians 2.2. 2. Ephesians 2.2. 2. You probably know this verse if you've read the New Testament or are familiar with it at all. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following, listen, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. There's about a dozen sermons in those chapter, or these verses. There's a lot that we could take up. We were all by nature children of wrath. Now, do you understand that that means that humanity in its fallen condition is by its very nature opposed to God and inclined to the devil? Children of wrath, even us. And we demonstrated this, didn't we? In the past, we demonstrated our allegiance to the evil one by refusing to restrain ourselves, never caring to do what was right. No, what did we do? We passionately and zealously pursued whatever our flesh and our thoughts desired. And that is how we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. But the point of this passage is, you all know what it's like to be blind. You all know what it's like to be captive to the evil one. You know what it's like to be ensnared by the devil and living under his power. Every one of you, just about, remembers what it was like to live outside of Christ. You know, at least you know it vaguely. Now tell me, were you responsible then for your actions? Was your desire for sin, was it foisted upon you against your will? You, you know, you wanted to worship God. You wanted to do what was right. You wanted to walk in the light. But you were forbidden and your hands were tied behind your back and you were bound. Was that your experience before coming to Christ? Is that what it means to be held captive by the devil to do his will? You had all these good and godly desires, but oh, woe is you. They were restrained and, and, and by the demonic oppressive forces outside of your control. You were prevented from carrying out all of these good things you hoped to accomplish. Well, of course, you know the only answer you can give if you're honest is no. All you can say if you're honest is I suppose I wanted exactly what the devil wanted for me. I was as eager to drink down his elixir as he was to pour it out. I was, I was as eager to eat his food as he was to give it. No one had to make you sin. That's my point. No one had to twist your arm. You were all too eager. So eager, in fact, that if anyone dared try to stop you, they would encounter resistance. Someone came and tried to put the brakes on your immorality or tried to bring you out of darkness, you would have fought them back and broke free from them and rushed back into the darkness of the kingdom of the evil one. You and I were totally in allegiance and completely submitted to the prince of the power of the air. Nobody twisting our arms, willing servants, willing slaves who recoiled at the idea of living in the light. And that is the nature of every single subject of this satanic state. They are citizens of the domain of darkness. They belong to the evil one and they serve him entirely. They serve him with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Whether they realize it or not, it's of no consequence. The result is the same. Truth is opposed and souls are condemned. You have to understand this. The devil is not looking for worshipers. Again, you wonder, why is God more well-known than the devil? It only makes sense. What does God tell his church to do? Go, make me known. What does the devil do? Works from the shadows. It doesn't matter to him if he has a, a great throng of people worshiping him. He seeks only to kill by deceit. Acknowledge him or not, it doesn't matter. Believe in him, deny him, it makes no difference. So long as men are confused and condemned, he is content. And so you see, people are not the victims of this fallen angel. 
but willful advocates. They desire to do His will because He has lied to them and they prefer the lie to the truth. And that is what He does. Kills by deceit. But knowing what someone does is not the same as knowing how they do it. And you say, He influences people. He blinds them. He captures them to do His will. Yes, that's exactly what we said. But how? And what I mean is, by what means? What are His schemes? What are the designs that we are not to be ignorant of so that we might not be taken up by them. How does he do it? Well, to put it plainly, he does his work through ideas, through religions, through philosophies, and any other isms that are incompatible with Christ. And it doesn't matter which ones. All of them have the power to damn. All of them have the power to assault the church, and that's all that he cares about. Now here now is where we begin to see the overlap with Revelation 13. Satan always is presenting a counterfeit to Christ. If you want to know how he exercises his work in the world, how he, how he carries out his authority, how he blinds people and binds them, this is it. He offers a counterfeit. He offers something. In Revelation, that something is signified by the beast from the sea. But he always offers something in the place of Christ. Jesus, we know, is the way, the truth, and the life. The devil offers an alternative. He offers an alternative way or an, al an alternative truth, which, of course, is a lie, and, and an alternative life, which ends only in death. He offers a counterfeit to the truth. He offers a counterfeit Savior and a, and a counterfeit Lord. And again, it doesn't matter who that Lord is or what the lie is or who the Savior is. All that matters is that it is not the Lord Jesus. You see how starkly the division is made between those who are in Christ and those who belong to the evil one. Christ's way is narrow. The way of the evil one of the world is broad. With Christ there is exclusivity. One way, one God, one gospel. With Satan it's any other way, any other God, any other gospel, so long as they're false. They all lead to the same hell. And that's what's being presented in Revelation 13. The beast is not a, an individual or an empire. It's this entire worldly system. It's the Christ-replacing system of the evil one at work in the world. Maybe you say, well, I'm not so sure. Um, how, how are you so convinced that this is how the devil works? Does it really boil down to something as simple and all-encompassing as everything that offers an alternative to Christ? Is the world so simply and easily divided into the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light? Well, what did the Scriptures say? There is 1 Corinthians 10. 19 through 20. What do I imply then, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And at this point, you might be reading this and be tempted to say, oh, that means idols are nothing at all. Isn't that what Paul is saying? But it's not quite what he's saying, is it? Verse 20, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see what Paul is doing here. He is making a comprehensive statement about false religion. And the statement is not hard to understand. Worshipping anything other than the God of the Bible amounts to nothing less than demon worship. That's the same in the Old Testament. Other gods are recognized as no gods at all, but it's not neutral. Those other gods are not nothings but demons. Leviticus 17.7, Deuteronomy 
32:17, Psalm 106:37. Behind all these false religions surrounding the people of Israel is the deception of the demonic. Now, have you ever thought about this? I think there's a tendency to think that all the other religions in the world are, are just people doing their best to seek God. And, and some even say, well, well, if they're sincere, I'm sure they'll make it. Now, such a view is incompatible with the words of Christ. We've said it already. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And those other religions are not neutral. Every other religion, paganism, Zoroastrianism, Islam, Hinduism, whatever it may be, spiritualism, and, and all its varieties, all of them are not man's best effort to find God. And they certainly are not alternative ways to God that if you work your way through them, you can come to Him. They are fundamentally demonic. This is the teaching of Paul, the teaching of the Scriptures. It is man finding Satan and being content. The Bible is clear. All other religious pursuits are false. They cannot lead people to God because they are actually demonic worship. And of course, now, we have to be honest, nobody in these religions would say that they worship demons. They would probably be offended to hear it. I can imagine if someone was hearing me now, they would be quite offended to hear it. But that's the point. It is a deception. It is a deception. And if you deceive someone, they do not know what you are doing. That's the very point. The devil is behind all other religious systems. They're a, a lie, a lie told to fortify people and entrench them against the truth and against God. And so if you meet someone devoted to another religion, you have found someone captive to the evil one to do his will. God is not in that religion. Satan is, and he is working to corrupt, distort, and confuse the devotee into believing he has found the truth and found God and found some kind of deliverance, but it's all a lie. It's a, it's a deception under de, un, unto death. It's not truth unto life. But it's not just other and obviously religious matters that people are willing, unbeknownst to them, servants of the evil one. It's not just in false religions. It's in any counterfeit truth, which of course is a lie. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And there are other passages we could go to to point this out, but we'll take a look at Colossians 2.8. And here it's not religion that's in question. It's not. It's any philosophy or idea that comes from a merely human tradition or, or comes according to the elemental spirits of the world. And, and I think for us this is much more relatable, isn't it? Because this is what we face in our day. It's not formal false religion that dominates the thinking of the men and women that you will rub shoulders with in the world. No, no, that was done away with long ago in the West. We face ideas. We face philosophies. That's the religious thinking, any religious thinking that exalts itself against Christ. And again, those who believe it, they do not think of themselves as religious. They, they, they certainly don't believe they serve the beast. They would be insulted to hear it even implied. It doesn't change a single thing. They have embraced a false messiah. They have embraced a false god and a false gospel just as much as any other religion. Islam or atheism, it makes no difference. 
And not only are all of those opposed to Christianity, they are counterfeits in every way. And my point is, they're not just opposing Christianity. As if they've put up their little, uh, little wall and they're throwing arrows and stones over at the Christians. No. They, they are saying, we have the truth and we have the way and your way is no way at all. The message is completely opposite to the message of Christ. Take environmentalism, for example. Not that Christians are at all to be apathetic about the earth. We're not. No, we are given one of the first mandates we're given in Genesis to, to be caretakers of the earth. We are concerned about the world around us, that we take care of what God has designed and given us. But environmentalism is something else entirely. In a way, it is a return to worshiping nature, and it contrasts Christianity at every point. Earth is headed towards, think of the similarities. Earth is headed towards an impending judgment. But what is it? Not the judgment throne of God, a climate crisis that the world from which will never recover. And there are doctrines, and if you believe them and live by them, then this environmental disaster can be averted and all will be saved. And some of those doctrines are rather benign. Recycling, not being wasteful, not killing all the whales. But others betray the sinister designs of this ism. You want to save the world? Stop having children in direct conflict with Genesis chapter 1. Treat humans as the problem. Certainly not men and women made in the image of God. Human life is fundamentally no more valuable than the beasts of the field. And, and so what if we trade a billion people in order to save, uh, save some small population of creatures in some obscure area of the world? No, human life is devalued. And as an ism, it is against humanity. It's against those made in the image of God. And so it is against God. And you see how someone in this movement is a willing participant of the kingdom of darkness. And of course, this is a gross oversimplification, but it's nevertheless true. Another example is uh, critical race theory. I bring that up because it's probably the most prominent today, and it's having inroads into the church, or, uh, or what's it called now, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, what was humanity made to be, or, or why do we exist? Well, an adherent of that system would answer, he... Or, of course, they wouldn't use that kind of language, but for the time being, he is made to be totally free, free to be whatever he or she would want to be. That's the goal, radical self-autonomy. But there's a great dilemma. And, of course, this dilemma is not sin against God, but oppression. Oppression, that's the great dilemma. That is the great problem facing humanity. They are oppressed, and that must be overcome. And once it is... And all oppressors are trampled down under feet. Oppressors like the created order of things. And oppressors like Christianity and the family and everything else that God made and called good. Once they are destroyed and in ruins, then mankind will be delivered. And then they will be free. And then they will be saved and liberated to reach their full human potential. And there are indisputable doctrines to be held and heretics to be hunted, aren't there? Governments and institutions are called upon to act as inquisitioners rooting out and punishing dissenters while enforcing the strict and inflexible dogmas. And there are gods, aren't there? In this system, there are many gods. In fact, every individual is given the authority of creator as they attempt to recreate themselves in whatever image 
they want. All of this is inescapably religious, isn't it? But it, it doesn't come merely out of a vacuum. It didn't just appear. It doesn't just flow down from the academic world. Now, behind it all is the kingdom of the evil one, the, the religion of Satan. It's Genesis 3, 5 all over again. What does he say? What does the great temptation put forward? You shall be like God. It's false in every instance. And that's part of the way that a Christian has to see the world. You, you don't have religious people and secular people and, and then all the rest. Oh, there are only two kingdoms. There are only two types of people. There are only two religions. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. There are those who belong to Christ and those who do not. There are those who are Christian, and those who believe the truth and live by it, and those who are not and follow the prince of the power of the air. And you wonder, well, how does this deception destroy? That's what it does. It destroys how? Well, this is how. When you hear foolishness, and you recognize it as foolishness, not because you're so wise, but because you know the Word. And what you hear contradicts and rubs against the Word of God. And you hear this foolishness coming from commentators and experts and everyone else. As a Christian, you number one, you ought not to be surprised. Because you, above all people, you know that the beginning of wisdom, not the end, not the halfway point, you don't get halfway and then discover it, you don't discover it at the end of your journey. No, the beginning, the very beginning of knowledge and wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord must come first, and from there, then, we can uh, know and wisdom can be discovered. Now, without this, nothing wise can be done. This is why there's such confusion in the world. It's not possible for a system or, or idea or philosophy to even be coherent if it denies the Creator. It's wrong in the first instance and can be nothing but wrong in the end. I mean, if you begin your journey going in the wrong direction, you will never make it to the right destination. Now, there are millions of examples we could hold up of this, but all of them have one thing in common. All of these... these dark ways, these deceptive ways of looking at the world. They are a way of looking at the world and of thinking about humanity and thinking about God and, and utopia and morality and even salvation that are opposite the truth. And it's foolish at the onset. Now listen, I, I'm not saying that everyone who denies the Lord doesn't know anything. They certainly do. They know two plus two is four. And they can identify many things. They can discover and discern rightly many problems that may be in the world today. They can put their finger on it and say, that is a problem. There is an issue here. And as Christians, if we're being honest, we would look and say, yes, absolutely, we agree. There is a problem here. But without any knowledge of God, they are utterly foolish and totally and completely unable to make any meaningful or positive application to fix what they've identified. Their answers are wrong. Their conclusions are flawed. They may mean well, but they are held captive by the evil one to do his will. And his will is to destroy. And because people are proposing and implementing solutions to, to all, of the, all of the social problems that we face, because they have no fear, by and large, no fear of God, they have no wisdom. 
and without wisdom, no matter how virtuous they believe their cause to be, no matter how good their intentions, all that they can do is destroy. They do the will of their father, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. They can't help it. They've divorced themselves from wisdom, and all that's left is the advice of the evil one. And Christians are well aware of that, or we ought to be. We see the religious nature of the world around us. We see how clearly all of these ideas are opposed to Christ. You, you can point and pick out the flaws in the solutions that are given. You say, no, that won't work. Why won't it work? Because man is not fundamentally good, but fundamentally evil. Or that won't work because God has designed men to work and labor, and if you uh, remove that labor from them, you lead them into sin, and that's not going to lead to anything good. Wisdom from the fear of the Lord allows somebody to make good application of wisdom to the problems that we face in the world. Apart from that, even good intention answers, good intention solutions are no solutions at all. Now all of these all of these philosophies of the world, they're clearly presented as replacements for the Messiah. It's a pick-and-choose gallery of potential saviors. And, and the entire system is presented to us in a Revelation 13 uh, as, a, as a grand, terrifying beast that makes war on the saints. A war that's been going on for millennia. The devil has been a deceiver from the start. And he deceives people, men and women, willing accomplices even further, to do His will and to make war on the saints. In the same way that the church is the body of Christ, active in the world, and, and His will is carried out by us, the devil is at work through people. And they carry out His will and promote His varied religions and proliferate His lies. They worship Him, even if they deny His existence. His hold is so great. And so that is how the devil dis that destroys he deceives. And how does he deceive? Through people who are held captive by him to do his will. Now, we don't have time this morning to look at particular threats to the church or at our response to them or at our greater response to the world. Lord willing, we may get to those next week. But I do want to close giving you a, a, a proper... A proper lens with which to look at the situation. I want you to be able to rightly identify the foe. Jesus says in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And with those words, he assures us that all of the hatred, all of the animosity that the world has towards a believer, to a Christian, it's not primarily because of us, but because of Christ in us. And it is Christ who is the antagonist to the world. And because He is in us, we become antagonistic to the world. It's only because we are in Him and He is in us that we find ourselves at odds with the world around us. Well, in the same way, those people who are enemies of the church, enemies of Christ, they are enemies because they belong willingly as servants to the devil. And though we must beware of men, be wise as serpents, and answer the foolishness, we must see them still as those who are bound and captive and blind. And so I ask this question. Are the politicians and academics and activists and, and the like, 
Are they the enemies of the church? Are Muslims and atheists, Marxists, moralists, humanists, are they the enemies of the church? Well, if it hasn't been made abundantly clear already, the evil one works through people. And we often think of him as being extravagant, and he only works in dramatic, over-the-top ways. No, no, you, you encounter an agent of the kingdom of darkness every time you speak to someone not in Christ. Ephesians 4.14 warns us to be prepared, to be fortified with the truth so that we're not carried away by the winds of doctrine and by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. But we must take that alongside Ephesians 6.11 and 12. We read it this morning. Verse 11, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You want to stand against the schemes of the devil? Here it is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. People, even the most hostile of people, are not our enemies. And even if they are our enemies, we're called to love them. But they're not ultimately the source of our antagonism. Because our enemy is not flesh and blood. That's who we wrestle. It's not who we wrestle against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but He works through flesh and blood. This is so crucial for understanding spiritual warfare at, at the theater level, at the broad sense. Those human players who are against the church and celebrate what is wicked and oppose all truth, they are not our enemies so much as they are tools of the enemy. And to get angry at them and, and to fight against them, well, that would be like somebody running into you in their vehicle. And then you jumping out and pounding on the roof of the car and blaming the car and letting them go without a word. Or, or somebody shooting at you and you blame the gun and scold the weapon and not them. Or somebody breaking into your house to rob you and you blame the pry bar they used on the window. It's misguided. It will do no good. Which is why those who are outside of Christ are described as held captive by Him to do His will. They aren't demon-possessed, but they are demonically controlled in their thinking and in their doing. Now, there's no such thing as a merely human opponent to the gospel. They don't exist. We don't wrestle against merely human forces because there aren't any merely human forces. They are people who are tools in the hands of the evil one. And now you may begin to see why John says the whole world is in his power. Because they really are. And how do you fight against that? Not with flesh and blood. Look at Paul. He, he doesn't go around casting out demons in the synagogues. He, he doesn't go to the synagogues and uh, agoras denouncing the devil. He went preaching Christ. He lifted up the gospel of Christ, and it is Christ exalted that opens people's eyes and breaks their chains and sets them free. That's what transfers men from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If you were going to find somebody who was lost in the darkness, what would you would do? You would shine a light. 
and seeing the light, lead them out. And that is how we are to work. We are to seek to deliver people from the power of the evil one. And in every encounter and in every prayer, it would be wise for you not to aim your arrows at the individual, but aim them at the one who holds the chains. You strike with the sword of truth, but you don't do it to cut your opponent down, but to cut the cords that bind them. And how do you do that? By exalting Christ. By preaching the cross and the resurrection, the gospel, and the truth, so that they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness in which we once walked. We all were controlled by the prince of the power of the air, animated by him to do his will. But Lord, you delivered us, and you didn't deliver us because of a, of a good argument against what we believed. You didn't deliver us because of a moral rebuke. But you delivered us, Lord, not by the despair of false ideas and religions that lead nowhere. You delivered us, Lord, by showing us Christ. By showing us Christ and the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that we, as your people, as we go out into this world, we would be, Lord, always carrying the light of your word and the lamp of your gospel in our hands. We are the light of the world. And I pray that we would not put our light under a basket, but be diligent, Lord, to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Help us, God, to do what Paul was called to in Acts, to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have given us that great commission, God, and we thank you for it. Help us, Lord, to exalt your Son, the only Savior for a deceived and lost world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.